This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on this special Star Wars Week edition of the podcast is uh, Phil Joyce of Amalgam Brewing and Westbound and Down Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. Thanks, Jamie. Good to be here with you. We will talk about this interesting relationship between those two breweries and how they interact and uh, and what Phil does for both of those. Um, before this, uh, Phil was over at Powder Keg Brewing. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, between Westbound and Down and Amalgam, uh, you know they've uh, they make Phil makes quite a few different types of beer, all sorts of barrel aged beers, clean beers, um, uh, sour beers, uh, table beers, uh, farmhouse beers, and we're going to uh, delve into a variety of subjects around that. Uh, but first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G and D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way with innovative solutions for the craft brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at 800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast and you'll receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D Chiller unit. Also, stay connected to the heart of craft beer and the revolutionary tastemakers behind every can and bottle. Download the free Tavor app to get highly rated independent craft beer delivered right to your door. Recent featured beers include Within Us from Anchorage, Stargate Nectarine from Black Project, King Sue from Toppling Goliath, Ninja vs. Unicorn from Pipeworks, and Beer to Pay from Side Project. Get $10 in beer money today with code BREWING. So, Phil... Walk me through a little bit of your brewing history. How'd you get to where you are today with this kind of dual role at Westbound and Down and amount in your own business uh, or your another partnership with another uh, Eric who uh, you also worked with at, uh, at Powder Keg? Yeah, I think uh, I started out as a home brewer. Um, did that for probably eight years, and I had sort of a, a mentor and a boss actually in my previous career field, engineering. Um, that kind of approached me one day and said, Hey, it looks like you're, you know, homebrewing a lot. You're entering a lot of contests and competitions and you're meddling these things as a home brewer. Do you have any interest in helping me start a brewery? Um, unfortunately he kind of promised me a job after graduation in college and could the economy tanked in 2008 and nine. And there was right. no way he could follow through on that. So fast forward, you know, seven years later, um, on, 2013 and he approached me and said, Hey, do you want to help me start a brewery? And, um, I said, well, I don't really know the first thing about brewing commercially. I can homebrew. I think I've got a pretty good handle on how to create recipes. Um, what's your timeline? Well, I would like to open this thing in about a year. I said, okay. So at that point I did, um, I was really avid. I participated a lot in local homebrew clubs. There's one specifically at Avery brewing company, um, called homebrew bottle collectors support group. And through there and events at Avery, I just kind of asked staff there, hey, like, here's my situation. Can you show me some ropes on some sort of commercial scale things? And realize that, like, okay, cool. Like, get your COP practices down. Here's how bigger things work. Otherwise, you know, I can come up with recipes. I can do that. So Powder Keg was open for five years. Um, Amalgam 
started in the powder keg building as an alternating proprietorship with powder keg being the host amalgam being the guest brewer there um, unfortunately powder keg is no more and as that brewery uh closed the timing wise kind of worked out that um, i kind of developed a specialty in sour barrel aged beers there and a big following for it and westbound and down wanted to start a sour barrel aged program and they kind of plucked me to do so so that was my first initial role with westbound and down um, which started part-time almost three years ago via collabs and a few consulting kind of things and then i came on uh full-time just a little less than two years ago with westbound and down so so it's an interesting one where uh you know we've we've seen these kinds of passion projects i think the one that uh you know become uh existing sideline businesses Obviously, side project and perennial is probably the best example of that kind of thing, where this uh, you know brewery business uh, developed and grew within the scope of this other business. This is the first time I've seen it where that uh, you know the kind of um, you know business that uh, hosted that uh, ultimately didn't survive, but the side you know business did. Uh, you seem to have found uh, a new way to kind of keep this passion project on the side. But also, uh, you know, uh, develop uh, some of these other styles of beer and brew in these other kinds of ways for another business that has some different brewing goals. How do you, uh, you know, envision the split and difference between these things? Um, I think that uh, Eric and I started Amalgam and founded it. And Eric is Eric Schmidt, your partner with Amalgam. Yes, that's correct. And um, we started Amalgam at Powder Keg under the roof there because there was a number of styles and things that we wanted to do that... um, were just a little bit more risky in the sense that they took sure. more time. There, there was more opportunity for failure within that, and we were like, "This is, we want to be really innovative." And there's, you know, we know we're going to have to dump beer down the drain. And unfortunately, Powder Keg at the time wasn't in the position to be able to take on those kinds of risks. So we kind of said, "Well, we've got some extra capacity available here in the brewery. Can we do that ourselves?" So he and I started that, started working on some different projects. Um, and then it's actually fun cause it's, it's sort of transitioned now into that the space we're in today, the cultural center is actually amalgam is the host legally and westbound and down is the guest brewer here, um, through a same alternating proprietorship. So kind of pass the torch there. And I think amalgam has survived because, you know, primarily we just, we're very committed to what it is that we're doing. It's, it's very small batch. It's when Eric and I are in our best sort of creative spirits and we want to come up with something new we do but kind of the the beauty of that is is both he and i are supported in in other business ventures he's got a full-time job i have a full-time job with westbound and down so our overhead the, the amount of money it takes to make amalgam work is you know pretty easy to maintain through our core group of followers and 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 the business can stay successful in that way so when we have a new idea or really special barrels become available or whatever it may be. It's just kind of like, well, let's, let's go in all on this. And, um, it's kind of what amalgam is to us and has been. Um, and I think, you know, it, it has survived because of that reason. I would say if I were trying to define a difference in the two brands now, Westbound and down and amount, Westbound and down and amalgam, um, the difference is mostly just in the growth models of the business. Um, you know, I, I'm very proud to put my name behind products in both things. I wouldn't say there's a quality difference of sure. any kind. Um, but, you know, as uh, an amalgam, it's often that, you know, we've, we've got a brand that's built that's Eric's 
been a big part of that somebody might say like, hey, we've got this special barrel or, you know, we've heard about this beer that you've done. Do you want to partner in this way? And it could be, you know, an ingredient. It could be a special coffee. It could be, you know, um, a different producer that wants to reach out to us and likes a beer that we do, whatever it may be. And um, this is the hardest question, Jamie. Um I think that um you know I think the only thing that really differentiates the two brands right now is that Westbound and Down the goals there are quality beer, quality food, quality service and experiencing that in a unique place. And to do all of those things, they have sort of put their their flag in the sand in championing brew pubs. And the first one in Idaho Springs um, has done all of those things. And I think we're all really proud to say that the food is really great. We get more feedback on like, we expected the beer to be really good. It was really good. The food was incredible. The service was great. Um, And Amalgam is just kind of still sort of a side passion project. And when Eric and I have the time and the interest in doing something for it, we we do it. Uh, A lot of people, when they envision these projects that are in addition to what their primary form of employment is, they're looking for some breadth or some, something that's a little different than what they're doing in that kind of primary role. Uh, you know, it would be challenging. I think for me, if my creative outlet was also something that I was doing for my day to day job. Yeah. I'd say that, uh, that it certainly is, is, uh, is true. Um, but I think collectively, you know, as a group between Amalgam and Westbound and Down, the beauty is, especially in this space, we can share a lot of resources. Right. We can we can do a lot of things like, oh, you know, we've got this, um, you know, really great farmer that we love working with, um, Deer Tree Farm uh, in Paonia area. And they're like, we have this great bumper crop of peaches. And it's like, okay, well, we want to use them. And we both make mixed culture sour beer. And I make it for both. And, you know, these peaches are of such quality that we're going to use them for both. And so... You know, we can buy more collectively that helps support their business. Um, and ultimately, the beers still end up different because of what went into them at first. The the mixed cultures that I've developed for both are different. Um, but a lot of the ingredients, the crossover is there because we're able to share resources and do things the same in the same building. Um, but it's it's really fun to end up with a product that that is different and yet like still has so much crossover, which is... I want to explore that a little bit more because I find it fascinating. You might make mixed culture beer for both brands using some of the similar ingredients, but different cultures. Um, you know, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about how you build that kind of, of brand expression. Uh, but first, whether you're a full scale production brewery, a tap room or a home brewer striving for the ultimate setup, October can steamers has the small scale canning solution. They've proven the breweries increase revenue through to go sales with October can steamers and everyone loves to sell more beer. You're only a few clicks away from selling more beer. Just head over to OctoberDesign.com slash podcast. That's October with a K. And use offer code Jamie, that's J-A-M-I-E, to save $50 on any can seamer purchase. Also, balancing barley and hops is your expertise, and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION, that's 855-692-5274. 
or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. So let's dig into this idea of different mixed cultures creating different expressions, uh, you know, for different breweries. How, in my experience, um, managing mixed cultures tends to be uh, uh, like taming chaos and, uh, you know, in a lot of ways and trying to build a direction and flavor expression uh, certainly is challenging. Talk to me a little bit about how you envision different mixed culture identities and what you might have, what you've done in order to kind of build different cultures for these different brand expressions. Um, yeah, I would say that um, first and foremost, I sort of think about the progression of mixed culture because they do change with time. Um, 100% from a sensory perspective, you know, if we, if we find a barrel that we really like and whether or not that's our mixed culture Saison or mixed culture, but bear like sour um, has acid bacteria in it. We'll propagate that um, for both programs. I would say initially um, in powder keg and uh, with where Amalgam started. Amalgam, I think in one of your early podcasts with Sante Darius, actually I had a very similar sort of inspiration as to how to build mixed cultures, which was just like, you know, I'm, I'm tasting this barrel that I have, the first barrel that I ever had, and I'm tasting this beer and it's lacking some acidity. It's lacking this component of, you know, sort of like uh, a unique funk that I'm looking for. And I might have drank it in, in a commercial bottle of beer from somebody else and said, this, this is a component that's going to make my beer better and I'm missing it. So those bottle dregs went into the barrel and um, the amalgam house culture developed that way. I couldn't even tell you what's in it anymore. We have both the sour culture and the Saison culture banked um, at Brewing Science Institute Institute locally. Um, but even then, as we repropagate it from them, it's still not the same thing. Hmm. We, we did that just in the hopes that we could come back to it one day. Um, and when we've tried, it's like, well, it's, it's, it's still not the same beast as you commercially propagate it. It's very different than how it naturally propagates on its own. Yeah. Um, but at powder keg, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of different yeast providers and I was really curious about, you know, what I liked. And so when Westbound and Down hired me, I had a pretty good idea of, I like the way that these mixed cultures or these things work together. Um, and so our two cultures, um, both Saison again, and sort of a mixed culture sour beer with acid bacteria in it is sort of a, a conglomerate of um, products from Nick at uh, the East Bay and Lance um, at Omega Yeast. And so the goal with that was, is when we first developed these beers, if we wanted to produce them again in the same way and have consistency in the future, here's exactly what it is. It's, you know, we're going to fill our Saison fooder with 15 barrels of wort, and we know that we want a five-barrel pitcher bowl of this blend and a three-barrel pitcher bowl of this other blend and a two-barrel pitcher bowl of this, whatever it may be, and we can recreate that time and time again, um, or at least hope to. Because they've 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 figured out how to they know how to propagate their thing yeah okay by the time amalgam beer you know where it is today I I can never sort of recreate that the same way again through through a traditional propagation it's just sort of it ebbs and flows and evolves and we just do it based on sensory from a sensory perspective how do you how would you describe each of the cultures um, I think that um, when the amalgam culture is really sort of firing on all cylinders um, in the mixed culture sour beer, I get this, I call it kind of like a Pez candy. 
character. It's it's fruity, it's citrusy, it's got a lot of like white wine grapes to it, but especially as it ages out, it's got this really great sort of complex minerality that's like almost chalky in a good way. And so I think about it as like Smarties or um as like I said, Pez candy, things like that. And um the Westbound and Down um sour culture is um it it's got this like bright citrusy thing going on it doesn't it doesn't have the minerality component um as much but it's got this like really clean sort of like underlying hop character in a way that i really enjoy it's kind of got a floral um character and a little depth that i think you know again makes the two things different um and uh i kind of like how they both work with different things but ultimately the beers are still different in the end which is fun do you hop them differently? Um, no, actually. Okay. Um, I mean, yes yeah, is the yeah. is the loose answer, but in all in all honesty, in our mixed culture sour beers, um, it's kind of just whatever hops we have on hand that we have yeah. access of. It's never, you know, it, it, they're not designed to be hop focused beers, but the the Westbound culture has a floral component to it that reminds me of like a soft noble hop okay um like a holler tower or something like that so. yeah is there are the similar grist bills for both of these or uh, do you uh start in different places for those uh, identical identical okay um then talk to me a little bit about how you build some uh you know a malt base for some of these mixed uh, culture mixed fermentation beers um i think it's pretty um pretty similar to um what a lot of people do um, the, both of the Saison strains have huge diastatics as components and in both Amalgam and West Bend and Down beers, they all finish, you know, at, at or below zero. Yeah. They're 100% attenuative. Um, and so the only way that we can kind of build back, um, some mouthfeel and some flavor is a, with, we do a lot to try to control our water profile, what that looks like. Um, and then, uh, you say not, do, a, do a lot. What does that mean? Um, we add back a lot of, um, gypsum, calcium chloride, um, and some chalk too, depending on what it is we're, we're trying to do with the beer. I'm, I, I wish I was more knowledgeable about it, but I like to consider myself sort of a water geek. And I think that's oftentimes the most forgotten ingredient, forgotten about ingredient in beer. Um, and I totally diverged from your question about grist. That's okay. Um, That's but uh, water's important too. Yeah, but generally, um, grist wise, it's um, it's roughly sixty to seventy percent pilsner malt, um, and the remainder of it, um, some sort of um, wheat, oats, either flaked, malted, um, whatever that may be. Uh, sometimes spelt. Just kind of depends on what what we have on hand. Um, we find that that like 60, 40, 70, 30 ratio works really well for us, but even between the, the oat and the wheat and the flaked and the knot and the spelt, and we still find that by the time our beers, you know, saisons, generally for both of us hit like the 150, 200 day range, which is kind of really as long as we let them go before we ever consider blending them or making a new product. And the sour beers that are like, you know, 12, 14 months plus in age, those the grist doesn't really matter at that point okay I mean, we're just looking for a mouthfeel component from them right but so much of the flavor is derived by the yeast um and and what goes on there that we find actually very little 
difference depending on what the grist is itself. If you're looking at such long-term fermentations, are you mashing in specific ways in order to uh, make things less fermentable and give that culture something to chew on over longer kinds of time or, uh, uh, you know, using some other kind of strategies to, to build that mouthfeel? Um, on the saisons, we, we find that because they all are, you know, a hundred percent attenuative and they all finish at zero right. Plato or below, um, we can kind of do whatever we want in the brew house and it ultimately really doesn't matter. <laughs> um, that yeast yeah, just has a yeah. mind of its own and it does, it's, it's does its own thing. Um, we've found that we find more flavor contribution from, uh, staggering yeast pitches, um, okay. which is really fun. So maybe we'll pitch a, um, you know, our, our Saccharomyces culture and let it go for three days and start to develop some esters. And then we throw, you know, our, our Brett mix at it. Um, on the sour beer side for both brands, we kind of treat the house culture more as a Solera, which is to say that we let it sort of develop and go whichever way it may go. And we pick our best barrels and we propagate them from there. Um, and so that, that side of things, we, we again find very little sort of impact of what we do in the brew house. We find more impact in the finished beer based on how we treat our water and what the original gravity is and other, and the hopping rate, I should say that too. But, um, most of these beers are all hopped early saisons are hopped a little bit in the late editions, but hardly ever in sour beer. Um, and so pushing that kind of softness, I, I find it interesting. Uh, you know, if you were to talk about, you know, saison uh, 10 years ago, nobody would have been talking about it in those kinds of terms. Um, you know, but it seems like today's drinker, thanks to the world of hazy IPAs and, and you know, uh, kind of uh, focus on soft mouthfeel is much more attuned to that kind of thing. Uh, how have, as that kind of trend impacted the way that you even think about uh, making some of these mixed culture beers? Um, to be honest, the trend hasn't really changed the way that we think about mixed culture beers at all. I think that the thing that I really like about like Cezanne, DuPont, you know, VA or whatever it may be, is that um, they can be very, very dry, but they're not astringent. They're like still so drinkable and like such beautifully delicate beers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really easy in the clean beer side of things. Okay, I take that back. <laughs> it's not really easy, but I feel like in a clean beer, like at Westbound and Down, when we're putting out a beer, you know, an IPA or whatever it may be in 16 or 20 days, you know, from grain to glass, we can affect what the mouthfeel does a lot more. And and on the mixed culture sour beer side, when you're giving these products as much time as we do and in barrels, it's it's the nuance of the yeast and does it produce glycerol and does that have a mouthfeel component? And we found that our, you know, I think if I, if I had to hypothesize, I would think that the grist bill up front kind of Yes, the wheats and the oats and things like that provide a little bit of more complex sugars for the longer term sort of flavor production of Britannomyces, but we still end up with the same gravity no matter what we do in the brew house. I mean, we've played around with mashing at, you know, 148 degrees Fahrenheit and like having a mash rest of two and a half hours. And we've played around with let's mash in at 160 degrees and they all finish at zero. And by the time, you know, we have a come up with a finished product, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and so I think where we really target that like softness and balance, I think is with how we treat the water. And so we might say the last batch we did was, was a little bit drier, you know, maybe like in, per 
factually it wasn't you know what i mean they're both like at zero play right, but right. sensory wise it appears a little drier or a little bit more astringent and like we're going to boost a little bit of calcium chloride in the next to like you know help bring some of that mouthfeel um and kind of just go from there obviously you've done a lot of experimenting with this uh have you found any difference between say malted and unmalted uh you know wheat or oats and the you know through that kind of grist component not really as much as i would have originally thought i think you know in, in beers like ipas and things like that um are you know we make multitude of styles at west mountain down and a lot of beer and so for me getting to see how malted versus unmalted wheat and oats affect beers like ipas and hefeweizen and and um you know certain types of pilsner and beers all across the board you know oatmeal stouts whatever that may be i find that that grist matters a lot more in those styles of beer and in sort of the mixed culture sour beer world what really matters is having enough to give the food, the yeast, the food that it's looking for. And from there, the flavor is really derived by the water, the yeast character and profile, and what the hopping rate was. Um, but whether or not it's malted or unmalted, um, wheat or oats or spelt, uh, I really find, you know, by the time and the, you know, spent in wood and everything else, it, it really, it doesn't make as much of a finished, a, a, as much of a, sensory difference in the finished product one of the you know things that we've you know uh, I, I know that you're engaged in is this question of you know and the kind of where the the boundaries are between something like sour beer and saison or mixed culture farmhouse beer uh, both of these beer you know even what we consider you know sour beer or American wild ale uh, and what we consider uh, uh, you know mixed culture farmhouse beers, uh, they both have acidic components to them. They both have uh, you know they're they're uh, fairly common roots um, and maybe some slight differences in the way that some of those cultures express themselves. But from your standpoint, uh, how how do you differentiate those categories of beer and or are they different categories or are they not different categories? Yeah, I would say that. Um you know, at least from what we do in, in both brands, um, the saisons are all 100% attenuative. I mean, the defining characteristic of those beers is they finish dry, 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 dry. Um, and oftentimes because they finish so dry, um, we have to adjust, you know, our starting gravity in those beers because we don't want to make 8% saison. We want to make 5% saison. But a lot of our mixed culture sour beers, for whatever reason, don't come into the same attenuation range. Um, and a lot of those beers might you say finish. forever for whatever reason. What do you think those reasons are? Is that, you know, the uh, acidity uh, impact on fermentation after a certain point? I'm, I'm sure it does. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have yeah. the answer there. But I've found that um, with, you know, both both beer programs, mixed culture sour beers have a mix of Saccharomyces, Britannomyces, sure. Lactobacilli, and Pediococci. And I find that for whatever reason, however they behave um, in that mixed culture thing, we always end up with beers that end somewhere between like 0.8 and 1.5 Play-Doh, depending on what it is. Um, and we can, no matter what we do with the saisons, we can never get them to finish above zero, period. Um, so maybe that's a difference in Saccharomyces. Maybe that's a difference in the way the Saccharomyces plays the specific Pretanomyces strains that we've sort of selected to work sort of in symbiosis in those beers. Um, but the mixed culture sour beers started a little higher gravity because we're still looking for sort of this like five to six 
ABV range and they finish generally about one Plato versus the Saisons, which almost start, you know, a Plato lower in the brew house because hmm. of that. Um, stylistically, I think that, you know, I, I really strive for balance in every beer, um, that we create. And a lot of You're time, the first brewer that's ever said that. Uh, that's, that's not, that's absolutely I've, not I've true. I've never heard this one before. Uh, that's you strive, absolutely so not So you strive true. for balance, huh? Yeah. And so, you know, on the Saison side, yeah. I feel like there, there is a dryness inherent with how attenuative those beers are. And if, yeah. if those beers finished at the same, you know, like three, 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 four, three, five pH, like our Sours beer, beers did, I think they'd be almost undrinkable because that dryness is kind of lends itself to a perceived like that plus the acidity is just like this is a hard, like it's a weird acid water like this is really right, hard to drink right, right um and a lot of those saisons you know honestly finish kind of in the high threes to four which like from a from a ph acidity level is really not that different from like what our pilsner is or yeah. like kolsch i mean it's it's really not that far off but i think that little bit of higher finishing gravity which we can control with hopping rate on the um Mixed culture sour beer side really helps balance out that much lower acidity in those beers. So if I if I actually answered your question, I would say that the biggest defining character is how much acidity is present in the beer um, across those two styles. But the grist looks very similar. Yeah. Um, the Saccharomyces sort of selection looks a little bit different. But um, the biggest difference I would say in those two beers for us at least is the, the amount of acid in the final product you say your sack selection is different what do you mean by that um we i mean um both uh, i think there's a lot of great saison producers that have some kind of mix of dupont and thray um you know the french and classic belgian saison strains we're, we're no different as are in both of ours uh saison cultures um the primary sort of saccharomyces strains uh, on the amalgam i don't again i don't know what it is at all at this point um i kind of never really have um and on the westbound and downside is we actually have um like an english ipa yeast in it because we like the fruit yesters that it produces early on uh in the fermentation and then we find that those esters play really well with Britannomyces and as they change and evolve them um long term in the future use an english ipa yeast because the bread metabolizes that into some uh, flavors that you like later on in the beer. Yeah, the esterification really works well um, with the Britannomyces that uh, we've selected. And we've we've played around with a number of different sort of Saccharomyces strains, whether or not that's a Hefeweizen strain or, you know, even like a, a Pilsner strain, um, kind of like the tried and true um, Lauren Salazar method, like, you know, have, have Pilsner yeast or lager yeast that's a little less attenuative and leaves some sugars, you know, for right. the future, but I think we've we've really found that the way the beer creates esters in the first you know week to fourteen days of fermentation really defines how the finished character of the beer is going to be. We can taste it as it's actively fermenting and be like, "Whoa, this has this crazy juicy fruit, peach ring quality. This is going to be excellent sour beer. Let's pick the best, you know, the best barrels we can find, and this is going to go, you know." And sometimes it's like, oh, it's it's a little bit more whiny. It's a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more floral. This is going to be a great blending beer. Um, and it just, you know, every every batch is different. We also, we don't really temperature control the facility here that we're in very much. So we find that we get very different ester profiles in the summer versus the winter when we brew these beers. Um, and that 
that actually makes, you know, a sort of a bigger difference in the end product than um, we would have ever expected, which is interesting. Uh, obviously, we're sitting here in the cultural center, this shared barrel warehouse uh, that's shared between Westbound and Down and Amalgam. Um, it's It doesn't seem to be terribly highly temperature controlled. Uh, it seems to kind of, you know, uh, shift and and swing with the seasons. Talk to me about how the, you know, differing kind of temperatures in the, you know, in the barrel warehouse impact uh, the, some of the expressions of your cultures. Um, I think kind of like I mentioned earlier that we find that a lot of the finished flavor comes from Britannomyces esterification and what happens in the first seven to 14 days of fermentation is, is really important. Um, and uh, we find actually that in the summertime, um, we actually get more esterification up front. So the beers ferment a little bit warmer in primary and we get this like um, really bright fruit character. But by the time they exist, like, you know, seasonally, um, we actually get um, a lower attenuation in those beers um on the sour beer side and we get less complex sort of like depth um long term and i think that like so much of the food is just attenuated and and consumed immediately that we get this huge spike in flavor yeah you know in in the first two or three months in the barrel um but there are other off flavors in that produced by the pedio cocci and things like that that we um we don't think is appropriate for blending so a lot of times the beers that we brew in the summer um, become really great um, base beers for big fruit additions the following year. But we find that if we're looking for like delicate nuance and and maybe a beer that's got like no fruit or um, whatever that may be, we find that we actually like the beers that are brewed in the wintertime better. Um, and they still produce some esters early on in fermentation. We, we knock... Um, all the beers out of the brew house at the same temperature. Um, but a lot of times our barrel warehouse here in the summer is, you know, in the mid seventies and, you know, there's no temperature control, so they get a lot warmer. And in the winter time, the barrel warehouse is oftentimes in the low fifties. And so I think that just inherently there's a lot, you know, steeper temperature rise in the summertime, which like I said, drives these like big ester characters immediately in the first, um, you know, like three to six months. But we don't really ever blend beers at that point. And so by the time that they get a lot older, they die off. And then sort of the slower fermentation, the slower esterification of those things, um, maybe that's, you know, in the summertime, I would hypothesize that more of the sugar is fermented by the Saccharomyces. You get this big flavor right, spike immediately. Right. And more of, you know, of the percentage of the beer is fermented by the, you know, Pretanomyces and the other strains of yeast in the in the wintertime. We're, we're also actually actively doing a study with um a local yeast lab on pitch rate, which is kind of fun. So we're, we pitched beers um, differently, inoculated them differently um, at a volumetric certain pitch rate and seeing how those change with time as well. You brew this at Westbound and Downs Brew House. Correct. You bring wort into the barrel house. Our, your primary fermentation is happening how? And then at what point does beer enter the barrels and, and this culture gets introduced to it? Cool. So on the sour beer side, we have kind of what I would call a horny tank, um, which is just a, a unjacketed, you know, about 25 barrel square, you know, liquid stainless steel tank. Yeah. And we will take 
um, you know, some of a previous batch or some of a barrel that we like, that goes in, the work goes in, it stays in there, depending on the time of the year and, and how it goes and, and really how busy the brew pub is, which really defines a lot of what we do. Sometimes it's in that, you know, tank sort of in primary for, you know, two weeks, sometimes 12 weeks. Um, and then rackage barrel from there. I mean, the primary goal there is to just not produce mess. We don't have any sure, sure. floor drains here. Um, in this warehouse. And so if we can, you know, primary ferment in a vessel with a blow off into a bucket and control that. Does it come down here on brew day then? Yes. Okay. Yep. So all it the starts wort- up in the mountains, right? Yep. Yeah. So we brew wort there, um, put it in transport totes, truck it down the hill um, for the sour beer, sort of pump it into that horny tank that we use. And then the Saisons for Westbound and Down is the Solera process. So we've got a 20 barrel food or craft or fooder, and we generally pull. Um, you know, 15 to 17 barrels out of there about every 200 days, um, leave three barrels behind and then refill it with fresh wort. And we pitch, um, a three to five barrel pitchable of sort of our mixed culture every time, um, to try to keep it consistent and see where it's at. But we, we do see sort of flavor impact depending on seasonality of when that ferments too. From a kind of production brew house standpoint, I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned especially on the sour beers, um, you know, that certain beers brewed at certain times of the year might become base stock for some sort of things and uh, or for fruit beers and that, uh, you know, winter beers might become something else. Uh, certain beers, if they express certain ways, will just become blending stock. You know, as you're thinking about what you're brewing, I mean, this is a very different way of thinking about brewing than, than you know, bring an IPA where I brew an IPA and it's on my, you know, my production schedule. I'm going to brew it here because we're going to need this much IPA at this point in order to get out, you know, and, and keep uh, up with the demand for this kind of beer. Uh, when you start brewing beer and, and thinking, I don't know how this is, where this is going to go, this might become a fruited Saison or it might express itself in a way that becomes a beer that we want to release itself. Uh, how do you think about, uh, you know, how much beer to make, how, you know, how to balance the uh, kind of capacity and barrels that you have in the warehouse, how much you want to get out there in the world, um, you know, how much you may actually have to dump down the drain because it doesn't work out the way you want to do it. Uh, how do you start thinking in a production, you know, kind of mindset about how you make that kind of beer? Right now we're at a phase where we're not adding any more oak. Um, unless it's a very specialty, um, oak product. We're not, we're not adding any sort of base, um, fermentation. Um, so most sour beer, uh, on both, both Amalgam and Westman and Down is, is fermented primarily for the majority of it in neutral barrels. Um, and then if we want to finish in a specialty barrel, whether or not that's, you know, we've played with some cognac recently, which is a beer we can open here in a minute. Um, and we've got some fun sherry barrels and uh, potentially some Armagnac and some other fun things to play with coming in. But um, we think about spirits barrels and things of that nature as a, a flavor addition. And because we're ultimately trying to create blending stock, we, we don't want a huge oak profile um, in it to begin with. We, if we have specialty oak, we want that to shine. So we, we just try to keep oak full at this point. So when we have beers that taste really good, um, and we have time to blend and think about it. We come up with something and then it's okay. Well, we just emptied eight oak barrels. How soon can we get them refilled? We don't want to leave, you know, we'll, we'll rinse and, um, we'll do a hot cold water, hot water rinse, get it out. But we don't like to leave 
um, barrels empty for more than 14 days. So if we come up with a blend, then it's like, okay, we got to get, you know, immediately we got to get, um, you know, a sour beer brew on the, on the brew schedule. And that's really easy to do because it doesn't use any of our fermentation space in the brew pubs. Sometimes it's like a, you know, we blend a beer on a Friday and it's like, shoot, you know, we know what we want to have, you know, this beer in a horny tank for 14 days before it goes into barrels. So we don't make a mess on the floor. We just blend in this beer. Like we need to brew another batch and, you know, in the brew house in the next two days and we go do that. So, um, most of that sort of, I would say that not growth in the production of sour beer is actually coming, um, because the barrel facility for West Pennadona is going to move, um, in the next 16 months and moving barrels full of beer is a really difficult thing sure, to do. Sure. Um, so we're, we've kind of sort of put a hold on, um, generating more volume, um, for the time being. Makes sense. Let's talk a little bit uh, and shift gears and talk a little bit about spirit barrel aging of sour beers. That uh, you know is a, not something that is purely American. Obviously, uh, you know Cantillon have aged traditional lambic in various spirits barrels, uh, you know, or various wine barrels in order to add some other kinds of character to them. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you have taken uh, that and added that additional flavor component to some of your sour beer, how you envision it and how you, uh, you know, kind of think about what beers and what other ingredients to add to these barrels, uh, to kind of heighten and uh, accentuate the flavors that they contain. Sure. Oftentimes I think, um, I'll open this while we talk. Cool. So, um, in terms of spirits barrels, I find that we enjoy letting the spirit barrel shine. Um, we've tried a few things with, um, American bourbon barrels, and we haven't really liked the results. Um, what do you mean? Um, I, I don't know. We we have oftentimes found that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the American oak pieces. I'm not sure if it's um, you know the actual liquid that was in it before, how that fermentation and distillation happens. Bourbon barrels are one of the few things where we find we get this kind of like briny component um, in the beer that is really unique, but it's it makes it difficult to blend with other things because at least for me, it kind of sort of defines the palate of that beer. And I don't really care for it. Um, this beer that we have in front of us, this um, Metaberry uh, Vanilla Cognac, is the first sort of cognac barrels that we use. It's a Westbound and Down beer that we did for our um, from the vault. Uh, sort of bottle club membership and I think um, it's obviously a big raspberry beer um, and the vanilla is definitely there too which kind of gives it a softness of mouthfeel but I find that the sort of the fruitiness of the of the cognac inherently gives it kind of like this before we added the fruit and the vanilla which to be honest kind of was the big driving profile um, it's got this really kind of unique peach ring candy kind of character to it that comes from the wood itself and um i think as we continue to sort of adventure down the the spirits barrel route i'd like to showcase what those specialty spirits are so probably um less less fruit treatments less things like that this particular beer is really fun because i feel like a lot of fruit treatments is very one-dimensional and i think if you blend you know multiple types of fruit or a fruit with a dry hop or you can kind of accentuate sort of this like bigger brighter 
juicier thing. That's just a little bit different. And I think that, you know, tasting this beer compared to the Metaberry, which is just sort of our house golden sour neutral barrels, same exact fruiting ratio. This is like such a truer, to me, like representation of what raspberry can be. And I think because there is this little underlying fruity component, there's there's a tannin from the wood that to me is kind of like a little bit seedy in a way. Um, but like this is like raspberry and vanilla pie. And it's it's really um it's really fun. And I think that there's there's no really way we could have recreated all of those flavors without the cognac. Now uh, see when you say raspberry uh pie, I think of the kind of hyper sweetened uh, you know, canned sour, you know, kettle sour beers that most folks are, are putting out these days that literally do taste like overly sweet candy kind of approaches to this. But when I smell it, I would, you know, describe it almost as the flavors that wine is compared to, you know, like it smells like the descriptors that people use to describe certain types of wine. There's almost a, uh, you know, there, there's a certainly an earthiness to the berry component. I almost get a little bit of, you know, almost like root spice to it. Um, you know, especially on the nose to where the berry is there, but you're right. That tannic character is strong and present. Um, and a, there's a hefty wine kind of grapey almost, but, but more in the kind of viscosity or, uh, you know, kind of almost raspberry wine type, uh, you know, approach to it. But it, creates those kind of earthy levels that are kind of high. And maybe some of that is the vanilla bringing out that, that kind of spiciness, you know, to the overall uh, character to it. Um, but I think simply pie may not give it justice. Mm-hmm. It may not, uh, it may cheapen, cheapen the experience a little bit. Um, you know, as I, as I'm delving into it, yeah, it tastes as complex as uh, a fine bottle of Cabernet as you're trying to kind of find those layers of flavor and nuance in it. I really wish we were um, actually out in the barrel cellar. I know it's way too loud out there, but I'd love to pull a nail on the cognac barrels that we have um, sort of aging right now. And kind of, you can see what, what the base beer um, plays with it. But I think um, I agree with you. I think there is sort of this like underlying grapey flavor and that um, toast level on the French oak really kind of, has these nice um, baking spice qualities, which is maybe why I think about, you know, pie or cobbler is that it's yeah. got these kind of like, you know, the crust component, right, of those things, which is graham crackery and got some like maybe some star anise and maybe um, some cinnamon and nutmeg and those kinds of things, which, you know, again, very nuanced, but I think really kind of round out the complexity of what this beer is, which is fun. I don't mean to insult you on that. I just, uh, I find that some of those descriptions um, are are so overused when it comes to beers that are far more basic. And, uh, um, you know, and I think that it's a struggle for us in the world of beer to find a language that describes some of these things with the kind of gravity that they should have. That, uh, you know, because those same terms are used to talk about very simple, very easy to make, you know, puree filled, you know, kinds of things that are, you know, here today, gone tomorrow and, and, you know, put into cans, uh, you know, it is harder, I think to, for, from a, you know, to create that kind of language that describes, um, just that kind of depth of nuance and complexity to beers like this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really kind of interesting that you bring that up because, you know, I find that there, there is, sort of a market for all of it. Um, you know, there 
there is a reason why barefoot wine is on the shelf sure, everywhere, sure. you know? And I think whether or not that's that's an oak additive or maybe that's just, you know, a stainless steel fermentation or whatever, that is a very different flavor profile than wines that are aged, you know, nine plus months, however long it may be, in, in oak to drive those characters. And those things will never be the same. And there are consumers that want one and one that want the other. And they have different understanding bases. And that's, you know, that's fun. And, that's and neither is wrong. And that's, yeah, that's not the point. You know, I, I don't think that's the, the case at all. I think that you're right. There are uh, cases and consumers for both of those kinds of things. Uh, people are not wrong because they have are not as interested in uh, in more in products that are at that kind of higher end and that demand more attention um, and more involvement and more uh, thought to appreciate. Uh, you know, it, the world is made up of all kinds of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about uh, another beer that we have on the table here. It's uh, Premier Goat. It's a uh, collaboration that you did, a blend with uh, Boca Rider in, uh, in Belgium. Yeah, which I think now is just, oh, sorry, Boca. just Boca. Boca. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, actually when I was still... The artist at, formerly known as Boca Rider. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I was still at uh, Powder Keg, this kind of wild-haired, crazy man walked in one day and he was like, this is the best American-made sour beer I've ever had. And I said, well, American-made, where are you from? And he's like, oh, I'm just a home blender in Belgium. I said, okay, cool. And he's like, where's your barrel stock? I said, it's right here. He said, these four barrels. And I said, yes, these four barrels. And he said, how do you create this complexity with four barrels? And I said, I I don't know. Like, I just, I'm glad you enjoy the beer. I can't really tell you much more (laughs) about it. But, you know, like, this is... You know, this this barrel that I kind of originally, it was a beer called Premier Blanc that was um, a powder keg barrel. And as um, powder keg eventually failed, that barrel became sort of the house culture of what Amalgam uh, is today. And he, he, it was a really interesting relationship. I said, well, what, what brings you here? Whatever. He said, oh, my friend, this like local Lambic legend, Bill Young, had me here. And, you know, I'm staying with him and I drove his car here and uh, like you're really like, why do you not do more of this? And I said, well, I'd like to, but I just haven't had the space or the resources or time to do it. And he said, well, you should do more of this. And that was kind of an original impetus in like really growing um, what Amalgam was as well. And so, um, you know, fast forward a number of different years. And, you know, I think, I don't know, maybe we were both, you know, uh, had too many beers and we're chatting online. He said, well, like, come, come to Belgium. Let's, bl- let's blend a beer together. I said, okay, that sounds incredible. I've, you know, at that point, I'd like never even traveled to Europe before. And I like packed a bag with a bunch of um, yeast samples from that barrel and all kinds of stuff. And we, we actually made two two collaboration beers. One, um, Amalgam, which we did with him, which is a blend of um, my beer from that barrel, um, plus some of uh, two-year-old Lambic of his that, that we selected. And we have served some of that, Originally, at a Weldworks Invitational, um, and unfortunately, I've only ever been <laughs> in the presence of six of those bottles for that festival. <laughs> um, and then I convinced him to um, give me twenty liters of that same barrel, two year lambic, to bring back to the United States. And I blended this beer here, um, the yeast cultures that I brought with me um, to Belgium when we did this. We we got fresh. Uh, wort that uh, I think 
I'll have to remember where he got it from and I'd ask him, but I think mostly was derived from Detroit and um, he pitched, you know, our yeast slurry into those barrels with the word. And for the longest time, he was like, this beer tastes like trash. It tastes terrible. It's not complex. There's nothing going on to it. And then maybe a couple of weeks ago, he reached out to me and said, this is like one of my favorite bottled beers I've made in a long time. I said, you bottled that beer? You said it was terrible. Like last we talked about it was two years ago. You know, he said, no, it's really good. And he's like, I'd like to release it at the McKellar Beer Celebration this year. And I said, okay, I had no idea. So I think Eric and I are going to try to go to Copenhagen and go uh, be a part of that and maybe come up with another blend. But um, it's just, I think the fun part about this beer for me is it really, more than anything else, I think it's, it it blends sort of the fruitiness of our culture and what lambic, beautiful lambic can be, and more more fun than that is it's it's a story of like friendship and camaraderie, which is like, you know, I think we all say we like to collab and work with other people because of those reasons, and this was like one of those, you know what I mean? You stumbled upon my brewery, I have no idea why. You know what I mean? Like, I understand you came to visit Bill Young, and how many breweries are in the front range? You stumbled into Powder Keg why right and then you were inspired by this beer that i made because you thought it was the best american made sour beer you've ever had and you still think that way and that's way too humbling and totally not even true but then like a crazy like yeah well just come over blend some beer you know and it's like okay i guess i'll just do that i'll just get on a plane and take a bunch of beer with me and you know that's what this is and now i think it's a it's a it's a deeper friendship between the two of us which is just really really fun not a, a calculated move by the executives to you know drive the the highest value out of uh, a perceived friendship for marketing value between the two of you. Um, no, not at all. Actually, <laughs> I think you know we we joke and you know we go there. And he's like, you didn't bring me any Coors Light. You live in Colorado. It's the freshest Coors Light you can buy in the world. Not bring me Coors Light. And I was like, no, I'm not gonna like pay for a checked bag to bring you Coors Light. <laughs> like I'm, you know, I'm sorry, Roth, but like. We're not going to do that, um, yeah. but but yeah, it's it's been a really really great friendship, and um, I think a lo- you know he's got a lot, obviously a lot of hype and a lot of people, you know, sort of following what he's doing, um, and I think it's just he's honest to what he wants to do, and I think that's you know that's that's kind of uh, beautiful in the beer world. So yeah, are there some non sour, non funky uh, kind of clean projects that you are engaged in now uh, on the westbound and downside that uh, you're excited about or that you are learning from? Um, yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, things like barrel aged imperial stout and barrel aged barley wine um, are becoming styles that are that are popular, but they're styles that we've always enjoyed to brew. And again, I think, and I shouldn't say that Amalgam also brews those and, and not just Westbound and Down. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, I think that as both brands, you know, try to diversify and, and capture um, a larger audience, you know, slowly and sustainable, sustainably, like for Amalgam, we have a story that beer is fermented or aged in oak. And that's true of everything we've ever done. And we can still do that within, um, you know, a barrel aged stout realm and, um, on the westbound, you know, and downside, I think Jake, the head brewer came from a little brewery called Hogshead and he sort of has an affinity for, um, creating and drinking English styles. And he's the first one that ever like gave me a JW Lee's, you know, like an old 
old ale and it was like this is really cool this is special like why don't people talk about you know what what you know i think it's jw's harvest and it's like why don't people talk about this and um they they made a barley wine at uh hogshead called window liquor and we wanted to make a barley wine um for a long time at westbound and down and we we finally did and that first sort of batch of barrel age barley wine that we all collaborated on came out with won this gbf silver medal which was um, pretty special, and I think we would like to continue, you know, brewing more clean barrel-aged beers there as the as the space becomes available and as we grow that program. And uh, you know, with us in our stout issue of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine uh, in earlier in 2019, uh, you all gave us a bottle of a beer. I think you're calling Underground Breakfast, which was what Other Realms barrel-aged Imperial Stout aged on some. Uh, uh, breakfast ingredients coffee and maple syrup um and a little bit of vanilla a little bit of vanilla uh and it uh, it did all right (laughs) (laughs) if i recall i think it scored a 99 in the magazine talk to me a little bit about that process about uh um you know working out of that barrel aged imperial stout stock building uh you know base recipes that work for kind of adjuncting and then getting good results out of that because there are a lot of folks making those beers. Um, you know, it is, it's not a unique thing that you're doing there in that kind of perspective, but it is a unique thing being able to get that kind of clarity of flavor out of a beer like that. Yeah, I think, um, I think that beer worked uh, really well and still does work really well. And I think that that's, that's kind of when I, when I mentioned earlier that, you know, it's it's few and far between when Eric and I both have time together to think and bounce ideas creatively because we're so busy with everything else that we have going on and and this particular you know uh, stout was like it it had a little bit of um, a spicy component early on almost like a soft cinnamon and it was like this is kind of just breakfasty and how do we play with that how do we you know soften what we don't like about the spiciness, but how can we utilize the spiciness that's already existing in this beer to help sort of like promote the other flavors that we want to contribute here? And we're like, okay, well, you know what I mean? We can, we can add some, you know, really fun, uh, you know, barrel aged, uh, maple syrup here at the end. And then that plays really well, like with like these like kind of like cinnamon pancakes and we can pick coffee, sort of like select it specifically for how it's going to fit um in with this beer and that that beer was really special for the two of us because it was it was a barrel that was very good on its own but it had enough flavors that we were like there's there's something else going on here and there's a way to make it better um with adjuncts we don't oftentimes think about making a base style for adjuncts we let the beer tell us what we want to do with it and i think that was a great sort of example of this has these nuances on it and we want to play with it we want to we want to accentuate it and how do we do that let's add breakfast ingredients to it so you know but just simply adding those ingredients is not necessarily a recipe for success on that um talk to me a little bit about how you do that um in order to get results that stay as bright as they were in that beer um, that, that don't get kind of lost and muddled, um, you know, because you're now adding a lot of complex things that are competing against each other in a relatively sweet environment. 
Uh, how do you kind of maintain like kind of clear channels of flavors through that? Yeah, I think we, we could have um, an entire podcast on my thoughts and methodologies <laughs> around how you use coffee yeah. uh, in beer. But I think um, coffee, especially, I've found that the quality of the roast matters a lot. Um, how, you know, these lighter, really bright, fruity coffees are really fun, but a lot of times it's not roasted all the way through and in water as an extraction method beer you've got acidity you've got alcohol beer is much greater solvent than just like making a cup of pour over is and so the way that coffee interacts in beer versus just a hot pot of coffee or water is is entirely different and the quality of the roast really matters and and the flavors that you select in the bean of itself and how it plays up in the finished beer i think um, really matters. And that's fun. We, um, we made a beer at powder keg called breakfast at Q's, which, um, Q's roaster is this little, uh, or cafe was this little coffee shop, um, in Longmont, just North of where powder keg was. And they sold almost like dragonfly coffee exclusively. And we used one of their espresso roasts in that beer. And sort of, we made a relationship with those people. They can read the review of that in craft beer and brewing magazine. Also, <laughs> I think that one scored a 97 with us. Just, <laughs> Um, but, but that's, that's fun because, you know, we could take a base beer and we could, you know, ultimately once we made that relationship, talk to the roaster about like what, what drives these flavors in the coffee and what do you think is going to work well with what our beer is and how can we sort of play that up? Um, and so on that side, I think the quality of coffee and how that beer has aged so gracefully is very much a testament to how we cared for the packaging of the product. Um, I think oxidation is across the board, you know, sort of the biggest enemy of any beer. Sure. I think it really matters in coffee. I think the immediate, like as the coffee, the, the seed of the coffee cherry of itself, how it's roasted, how it's treated, how that product oxidizes before it ever even sees beer is different than how, you know, so how it then affects the beer in and of itself. We use whole bean coffee. We don't ever grind it. We don't ever want to add more oxidation you get it you, as, as coffee is roasted it it actually off gases co2 it creates its own sort of safety environment and the instant you grind it the instant you change its environment it changes drastically and so we believe in using whole bean coffee we don't grind we don't do anything we sort of cold soak it in the beer for about 24 hours um and then get it off those coffee beans and do something else with it so wow now maple you know, I know that, especially when it comes to maple syrup, this is kind of a touchy subject. Uh, it is incredibly hard to get a maple character out of a beer that uh, has an aromatic character without uh, relying on uh, some non-maple syrup type ingredients that uh, that kind of echo that. What uh, what is your approach and kind of you know philosophy around that kind of thing? Um, for this particular beer, we added um, the maple syrup late um in fermentation and um well i should say not even late in fermentation um at at the very end after it already spent time in barrel and i think um there was a lack of healthy yeast 16 months after that beer had been in barrel to ever do anything with it so i think part of the reason that beer is balanced is that the maple syrup actually added a little bit of sweetness 
that never really got fermented out. And you have to really care for the beer from there to the package to make sure that that's stable and safe. Um, and uh, I think that that little, that little bit of sweetness really kind of brought out, again, a lot of those other flavors and sort of just sort of created this like beautiful symbiosis between what, what else was going on there. Well, it worked. Um, yeah, it worked. It worked well. I mean, I think, you know, like we, we selected coffee that had good flavor specifically in mind for the beer we were putting into. And we tasted a bunch of different maple syrup and said, this one has kind of some vanilla components and it's got a lot more kind of, you know, flavor. I think it's going to work well in the beer. And we selected that. You know. How do you select maple syrup? I don't know. <laughs> um, there's not that much, you know. Uh, no, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, right? Like, how do you honest, taste a few? Yeah, I think you know. I mean, I mean, it's like the process in any product makes a big difference. I think honey tastes very different depending on sure, what it is that absolutely, you use. absolutely. And, and there's a big difference in maple syrup and whether or not it's like you know this this works really well on these pancakes and you know this is this is the maple syrup that I like. Um, but I think that you know again coming from this base beer that was like rich and chocolatey and a little bit of the spicy roast character. How do we find something that is, you know, kind of like got this robust earthiness to it right. to kind of like tie in some of the spicy cinnamon components, but also like has, you know, sort of a soft sweetness to help sort of build the other flavors in this beer. How, how do we, how do we do that? And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, what does maple syrup taste like? And we like this brand versus the other. And, and this is what's going to go in the beer. So, so Phil, what's next for uh, for Amalgam and for Westbound and Down? Um, so Westbound and Down, we've got uh, another new pub um, coming uh, in Lafayette, Colorado. I hope. Um, and you hope? It, yeah, I think anytime you build something new, there can always be unforeseen challenges. Sure. Sure. Um, whether or not that comes from a finance perspective or whether that comes from a construction viability perspective, however that works. Um, and I think, you know, at a core Westbound and down, we're still trying to create great beer, great food, great hospitality, um, and a great experience for the consumer. Um, and, the new facility in Lafayette, should all things go well, will be very much all of those things. I think um, we're all really excited about it internally. It's going to give us a lot of resources to make some more beer, but also create very interesting, sort of beautiful, experiential things for the consumer. Right. Um, and for Westbound and Down, I think it's still, um, you know, just kind of what Eric and I want to do when we're you mean you for know. amalgam. Yeah, what did I say? Did I said Westbound. Oh yeah, for amalgam, it just kind of you know when when Eric and I are inspired. Um, this year, particularly, we were inspired by um, a few farmers here local to Colorado that are sort of like grafting their own stone fruit varieties. And on the mixed culture side, we've got a lot of really cool fruit beers. Um, we've been working with some gin barrels, um, locally that we're really excited about. And we've got some, um, gin barrel beers with fruit in it, gin barrel beers with, um, local rhubarb in it that we're excited about. Um, and then we, you know, we want to delve more into some clean beers, not having our own brew house makes that a challenge, but whether or not that's again, leaning on relationships and friendships that we have and making 
um, some clean beers as collaborations or brewing more, you know, uh, wort for Imperial Stout and um, kind of trying to grow that and whatever it may be. Um, I think we'd, we'd hope to put out some more beers like Underground Breakfast and like other realms in the future. And um, we, we've got some beer and barrel to do that. So that's exciting. Um, but yeah, kind of when we're, you know, when Eric and I are at our most creative and we've got time to do it, we put our heads together and we make, make something happen. So what's your, uh, what's your measure of success? Hmm. That's a tough question. Um, I think just beer that we're proud of, you know, for both, for both brands, beer that we want to drink. And I think in an ever-changing market, it's tough to sort of define what the Venn diagram is of what, what the consumer demands and what we want to brew and how we fit some space in the middle. Um, and I think we, we try, you know, to find that balance of, of what is in the middle and, um, you know, that's, that's what kind of drives us every day. Well, cheers. That, that, that's what success is, I suppose, <laughs> right? Is, is, you know, a business that in this crazy marketplace can continue to exist, but also is something that we want to wake up and do every day. And finding that balance is, is challenging sometimes. Feeds you creatively, uh, stimulates your, cons- your customers, uh, you know, and to uh, drive some enjoyment for them out of your product. Sure, no, that's the... I guess that's the Holy Grail. Yeah. And I guess we may never get there, but that's certainly what the goal is. And so maybe we haven't achieved success yet, but that's that's where we want to go. Uh, for 25 years, D&D Chillers has led the way with innovative solutions. Stay connected to the heart of craft beer with the Tavor app. October Can Seamers is the small-scale canning solution. And Clarion Lubricants is the expert at food-grade lubricants. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button and subscribe to the magazine. You'll get to uh, read some fantastic stories or reviews of uh, Amalgam and Westbound and Down beers, for that matter. Um, Phil, if people want to learn more about Amalgam and Westbound and Down, where would they find both of those breweries? Um, I hate to admit that uh, for Amalgam, we have... At least at this point, I think a pretty abysmal website. I don't even know that one exists. Um, but we, we try to have tastings here at the Culture Center about once a month. You can follow us on social media. Um, we're pretty active on Instagram and post about events on Facebook. Um, Westbound and Down. Um, we've got the Brew Pub, obviously, in Idaho Springs. And we're going to add more brew pubs uh, in the future. We're tasting events here at the Culture Center. Um, more of a barrel-aged mixed culture beer focus um, with a little sort of salt edition of clean beers from Westbound and Down. Um, again, once a month, you can find out about those uh, from the Facebook and social media channels. Um, and Westbound and Down, you can find us at westboundanddown.com uh, and uh, follow us on you know, Facebook and Instagram there too. Thanks for joining me on the podcast this week, Phil. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Yeah, cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.